I can't even remember like exactly what happened because some parts I just like blurt out like I don't even want to think about <laughs> but it felt like then um October came again and the reminder of the fires came up all over again and that's when I was like super sad again like I just like everything reminded me of the fires like people were posting about the fires like the anniversary like oh my god it's already been a year and I still haven't like seemed to move on like I felt like I was just like not improving too much mentally because I was still like so stuck on what had happened October happened and then I was reminded of the fires and then that's when I was like felt pretty emotional after that like it's been what three four years now since the fires um every October just feels really sad to me for some reason like I just try to avoid October like I don't know how I can't really avoid it but 2020 or 2019 but yeah um that time I was actually really really paranoid like I got panic attacks like I was I was getting panic attacks panic attacks that whole time where people were like you have to evacuate you have to evacuate and the fires got really bad again and I actually had pretty bad panic attacks and I was actually starting to pack like all my things like this time I was like I'm gonna be prepared like I have to pack all my things that I have. I'm Ritza Camacho and this is Chronic Catastrophe a podcast looking at what happens to our minds, our bodies, and our spirits while living through occurring environmental disasters. Wildfires in Sonoma County aren't breaking news anymore. Yeah, it's newsworthy that whole developments turn to ash. We lose schools and offices and wineries, and people everywhere watch our fields and forests turn into fiery hellscapes. But the wildfires aren't surprising. They've happened in four of the past five years, and they show no signs of letting up. Their regularity is absolutely, totally depressing. But it's also informative. We've learned fires are happening more often because we've primed our environment and our communities to burn. We've learned to pack in advance, to photograph our furniture, to save copies of important documents to the cloud, and to map escape routes in advance. We've learned where to cut the gas lines to avoid explosions at our houses. We've learned it's life-altering to evacuate your home, to drive away through clouds of smoke, wondering if you'll ever see your bedroom, your barn, or your garden again. None of this is up for debate. What we don't know, or what we don't talk about, is what's happening to us as we live this cycle over and over and over again. Researchers around the world defined all different types of depressive states, anxiety diagnoses, and trauma. They study how all three affect a person's ability to function and to thrive, and they create programs to help people recover and heal. The disaster-based models define different phases of disaster-related mental health, like the impact, the honeymoon, the disillusionment. These models map a person's path through the phases from point A to point B, the road from fleeing to rebuilding, the journey from trauma to peace. In our case, it seems their straight-line models aren't right anymore. Like, even PTSD doesn't fit us, because 
we're never really post-disaster. Just when we've reached what's supposed to be the end, it all begins again. And thanks to what humans have done to the planet, we've guaranteed that this cycle repeated disaster will be true for the rest of the U.S. too. The disasters themselves might differ, but the effects they have on our minds, the worry, the calculation, the pressure, the loss, the grief, or the relief, those will be the same. It's time to talk about what it's like to live in a chronic catastrophe. But like, I remember going in there, it was just like a freaking zombie apocalypse. Like, if you remember the pictures, like it was, like I could not believe that happened to Coffee Park. Coming to seeing that was just honestly so heartbreaking. Like everyone around you was just crying for their houses. Like it was just so sad. Like everyone was shocked, crying, screaming. Like it was really bad. Like, I don't know, it was so sad, but I was, I was like so shocked that I couldn't cry at that moment. Like seeing everything was just like, this is a bad dream. Like you literally feel like you're in a bad dream. That's Atel Contreras, a now 20-year-old student who, in 2017, survived the Tubbs fire with nothing but the clothes on her back. Since that harrowing night almost four years ago, Atel's been through a lot. She's cried, suffered, and slept for days. She's panicked at the sound of a smoke detector and the smell of smoke. She's given up on herself in school and sports, and she's shouldered blame for all of her family loss. But Atel's also trying to rebound in Sonoma County, the only place she's ever called home, and a place that feels like it's at the crossroads of climate change and our worst nightmares. Linda Hopkins is chair of the Sonoma County Board of Supervisors, and she sums it up like this. You know, when I first took the oath of office as a county supervisor more than four years ago, I never would have imagined that I would essentially spend the job in a constant state of emergency. And I do mean constant state of emergency. It has been fire, flood, and of course, most recently, the pandemic. And a declared disaster in local government lasts a lot longer uh, than the actual disaster itself, because we are essentially always in recovery mode here in Sonoma County. Um, I have been through three severe record-setting wildfire seasons, as well as um, one of the uh, floods of record in the lower Russian River, as well as one more minor flooding incident. And we are now at an unprecedented level of um, drought in Sonoma County. When you look at our reservoirs, they have never been this low at this point in the season ever before. And so it has been essentially one unprecedented uh, natural disaster after another. But I think the clear argument and the clear point is that these are not natural disasters. They are anthropogenic disasters as a result of climate change. Supervisor Hopkins is right. Our wildfires are not truly natural disasters. They are anthropogenic, meaning they are related to or resulting from the influence of human beings on nature. Scientists warned us this was coming, but like a lot of us, Representative Jared Huffman hoped we wouldn't reach this crossroads so soon. Huffman represents Californians who live between the Golden Gate Bridge and the Oregon border, and he serves on the U.S. House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. The past five years have have really been where all of the distant projections and, uh, you know, future scenarios 
come into reality uh, far too quickly for uh, many parts of, of my district. This is no longer some distant uh, thing when we talk about extreme fires and droughts and other impacts of climate change. It, it is here and now in a big way. You know, the, the fire seasons alone that we've had in the last five years really tell the story. And according to Daniel Swain, a standout climate scientist who also happens to be a Northern California native, the story goes like this. The impact that humans have had on our climate doesn't only increase temperatures, which dries out the landscape, but that those adjustments make the disasters themselves more dangerous. You start to increase the vegetation dryness, you start to increase the fire intensity, you actually start to change the fire behavior and how quickly they spread, how easy it is to jump hopscotch over uh, rivers and roads and freeways in the case of, of Tubbs Fire. So you change all of these fundamental characteristics of the wildfire that matter most for risk to humans, that matter most from the perspective of how effectively they can be fought and how effectively you can evacuate from them. Swain is a climate scientist at the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability at UCLA. He's also a fellow at the Capacity Center for Climate and Weather Extremes at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. His recent work includes titles like A Shorter, Sharper, Rainy Season Amplifies California Wildfire Risk. But his research isn't only fire-focused. Another of his recent studies includes increased flood exposure due to climate change and population growth in the United States. It's not just the West that has a problem. Nationwide, disasters are getting worse. This is true for fires, hurricanes, and floods at this point, as far as I can tell, and probably for other things too. It's not necessarily making certain things more common overall, or even making the typical, um, you know, it's not making minor flooding worse necessarily. It's not necessarily making minor fires worse. It's, it's, it's making the biggest and baddest ones bigger and badder. Imagine that. The biggest and baddest ones. The biggest and baddest hurricanes. The biggest and baddest tornadoes. Fires. Floods. They're just getting bigger and badder. I can literally count with like my hand with one hand like the people that know this whole entire story. Like I've only really told a very few people exactly everything that happened. So like if you asked me to do this like literally a few years back or like right after the fires, I would be sobbing. I would be sobbing. Like I didn't want to make this super sad. That's a tell again. And after four years of recovery, she is only now in a place where she can finally tell the entire story of what happened the night of the Tubbs fire. That wasn't always the case. Mental health is a hot topic today, and while it remains taboo for a few, more and more people acknowledge that mental health is a very real component in our existence as healthy human beings. Celebrities are open about their struggles with depression and anxiety, and most regular people know at least one person who sees a therapist. At least that's true of Californians. Here in Sonoma County, PTSD makes a great conversation starter at parties, particularly in October. Someone brings up the weather, maybe it's been hotter than usual. Another person sighs and says, I know, and I was driving along 101 today and noticed how dry and brown the mountains looked. A third person chimes in and says, hey, let's just be glad it's not too windy. And then a fourth says, yeah, I get jittery every night when I check the forecast. Not a single person at the party disagrees. 
all these partygoers get jumpy when it's hot, dry, and windy, because those three conditions together cause what we call fire weather, and we're conditioned to link it to stress and fear, simply because we've lost so much over the past four years whenever it feels like that outside. It wasn't always this way. October used to be a high point for life in Sonoma County. The time to stomp grapes at harvest festivals, to watch vineyards turn a golden red, and to soak up the last vestiges of summer in our beautiful land of abundance. In 2019, Sonoma County produced more than half a billion dollars in grapes and hundreds of millions in eggs and poultry, apples, cattle, cut flowers, and cannabis. Our scenery is vacation worthy and varies widely depending on where you find yourself in the county's one million acres. The western edge of Sonoma County meets the Pacific Ocean, where we enjoy 55 miles of rugged, undeveloped Pacific coastline. Inland are rolling pastures and, along the Russian River, thick second-growth redwood forests dotted with a few surviving stands of the ancient trees that grow taller than football fields are long. Further inland are Sonoma County's heavily populated cities of Santa Rosa, Rona Park, and Petaluma, where the vast majority of the county's half-million residents live in suburban-style developments and low-rise apartments. And throughout the rest of the county are the valleys that made us famous, the Sonoma, Alexander, and Dry Creek Valleys, which you may have tasted in liquid form. In addition to our abundant harvest and panorama-worthy views, we also have that famous California sunshine, and it bathes all these coastlines and vineyards and trees in warm golden light, particularly in October. This is how Sonoma County residents prefer to think of that month, or how many of them used to. Now they're like a tell who wishes she could avoid the whole month, avoid the sadness it brings, avoid reliving the night, a hot, dry, windy night in October that set her on a path through what mental health researchers call the six phases of disaster. It was about two o'clock in the morning on October 9th, 2017. The night was warm and it had been hot, 20 degrees hotter than usual for the past month. The air was dry like in Las Vegas and the wind had picked up in the mountains above the Santa Rosa neighborhood where Adele sat in her room studying for her first college midterm. She was cramming, but her family, her mom, her dad, her four sisters, were all sound asleep. Mothers claim they can sense things, things the rest of us miss, and Atel's mother was no different that night. As Atel said, I don't know, she just got an urge to wake up. She knew that something was not right. Because I was still up, my mom went into my room and she was like, what are you still doing up? And I was like, well, I'm studying. And then I don't know why she went outside, and she opened the door, like the front door, and that's when she saw all the smoke and like everything just flying around. And my mom was like, there's a fire. Like you could literally see the fire. Like it was really, really close. And then that's when my mom just started freaking out. What Atel is describing is what researcher and registered nurse Diane Myers defines as the impact. The moment disaster hits, the precipice of catastrophe. In August, 1994, the Department of Health and Human Services, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration published Meyer's Disaster Response and Recovery, a handbook for mental health professionals. The book charts six phases of disaster-related mental health, 
Her goal was to educate volunteer and professional therapists on how to best serve the suffering public and first responders. But the paper is insightful for anyone looking to understand what happens to our minds after large-scale tragedy. During the impact phase, Myers says emotional reactions vary widely from shock to panic, and Atel, who within 30 minutes went from nosing her books to fleeing for her life, felt both. My mom was like, start packing, and in the instant, like, the lights went off, so as I was packing, I couldn't see anything. I couldn't even find my phone. I did, like, the flashlight was, like, not helping. I was, like, freaking out, but at the same time, I was, like, calm because I just, I never thought that that would be the last time I would leave my house. But it was. What Atel didn't know was that a firestorm was only a couple miles away in Fountain Grove. It traveled down the mountain at an astonishing 12 miles in four hours, churning through woodlands, hundreds of million dollar houses, two hotels, a mobile home park, a high school, a veterinary clinic, and everything in its path. It wouldn't be long before the fire jumped a four lane highway and arrived squarely in her neighborhood. She didn't know that her whole 1300 house development would be leveled within a couple hours. So, listening to her mother, Atel packed. While she threw her favorite purses into a blue and orange duffel bag, the situation worsened. Smoke started to filter inside, and their smoke detectors went off. She was out of time. Atel hustled toward the front door, clutching her duffel bag, grasping at keepsakes on her way out. Three of her four sisters were in the car, waiting to be driven to safety. The three-year-old was not. If for some reason, my little sister was not in the car yet and all my other sisters were in the car for some like my parents were literally like freaking out that they forgot to put my little sister in the car it was like baby albums that i had like gathered in my hand but i yeah i grabbed my sister and she was like i remember her like just crying and screaming too because like she was like freaking out like the lights were on the lights were like going off and on so atel set down the precious things she'd collected grabbed her sister put her in the car then slammed the door behind them and then that's when I left the duffel bag that I had packed, the only one, like, big one that I had packed. And the things I had in my hand, I also left behind. It took Atel's family 30 minutes just to pull out of their driveway. The development was gridlocked. Police officers attempted to direct traffic, but it was futile. Horns honked. People screamed to wake their neighbors, screamed at kids to move faster. Her little sister cried. Embers and ash floated down from the sky, and the streetlights flashed while 20,000 people left behind everything they owned. The Tubbs fires started on October 8th, according to authorities, by a downed power line on Tubbs Lane, just north of the hot springs and mudbath town of Calistoga in neighboring Napa County. It had been abnormally hot for days, and the hurricane force winds propelled the flames southwest blowing them up and over the mountains, dotting eastern Sonoma County, down canyons across a petrified forest in Safari Park, through Fountain Grove, a wealthy enclave, then over Highway 101 and into Coffee Park, a solidly middle-class neighborhood. No one, regardless of net worth, was safe. It burned through the end of October.
After making it through the initial impact of a disaster, people enter the heroic phase. According to Myers, it's characterized by a high level of activity, but a low level of productivity. This is a tell's frantic packing, which was the right move, of course. Grab a bag, start tossing stuff in. But as Atel says now, saving her purse is probably not the best use of her time. The heroic phase is also defined by a sense of altruism, or selfless concern for others. Myers says this feeling translates into people exhibiting adrenaline-induced rescue behavior, and, as a result, their risk assessment may be impaired. This is when regular people play chicken with Mother Nature. On the same night Attell's family escaped the Tubbs fire in Coffee Park, Stacy Toole, her partner Taylor, and their seven-month-old son were asleep in a mountainous part of the county, where the Nuns fire was racing over the mountains from Napa County into Sonoma Valley. Her phone rang at 1.30 in the morning. It was a neighbor alerting her that she could see a fire in the distance. Stacy woke Taylor, and he ran to wake the next-door neighbors to tell them they needed to, in Stacy's words, get off the mountain. They jumped in their car, which still held suitcases and Stacy's guitar. They hadn't felt like unpacking when they'd gotten home earlier that night from a camping trip. We lived on Cavedale Road, which is a familiar road for a lot of cyclists and people in um, Sonoma Valley, and it's a very steep, windy road. So we drove very slowly down the trees, swaying, and I could see glow, what looked like fire coming from south of us. It looked like there was a glow there, but also coming from the north. So it was really unclear which direction the fire was in, where it was. So we just drove really slowly and carefully to get down off of the mountain and went into town where we went to my mother-in-law's house. They arrived in the valley at around 5 a.m. and managed to speak to a neighbor who lived nearby and had stayed home. He could see the fire, but said their house was still standing, although no one knew which way the nun's fire was headed. Taylor decided to head back to the house, but he wouldn't have much time. So my partner, as the sun was coming up, wanted to go back up to pack some stuff which of course was nerve wracking for me. And I told him he had exactly one hour to go. And I gave him my short list of things that I wanted him to pack. Taylor was in the heroic phase. It was risky to go back up the mountain without knowing what would lie ahead, particularly with the fire so close and the winds whipping at 60, 70 miles an hour. But the risk didn't outweigh the reward in his mind. Taylor's adrenaline tipped the scales. He felt a sense of altruism he wanted Stacy and their infant son to be comfortable while they were uprooted, so he needed to retrieve items he'd left behind. The American Counseling Association agrees with this assessment that it's common for some survivors to feel heroic or invulnerable, especially during or immediately following a disaster, because they've survived. Perhaps Taylor felt that since they made it out once, he could do it again. And the, really the only thing I'd asked for that was sentimental is that um, my parents had just recently given us an antique wooden sign that says home sweet home. And we had hung it just before our baby was born. And so I said, will you grab the home sweet home sign? And that was really the only like sentimental thing I asked for. Taylor made the round trip safely. He'd driven back up Cave Dill Road toward the blaze. Unsure of what he'd confront along the way, wore cloth diapers and camping gear 
since he suspected it might be a while before they could get back home. He also took what is now the only piece left from their house, the home sweet home sign. Everything else is now part of the mountain. And I felt like that at the time. I kept saying the important thing is we're all fine, you know, like we all have gotten out. Our neighbors have gotten out. Nobody lost their life. Like that's the most important thing. I would definitely say in the immediate aftermath of the fire, I think I had what's called survivor's euphoria because I had a seven-month-old baby who was safe and healthy. Stacy's right. She did have survivor's euphoria, a period marked by intense excitement and happiness. Glee, joy, relief. She made it through, as had her whole little family, and she was elated. As you might expect, this is called a honeymoon phase, and it features a dramatic shift in emotion from the earlier phases shock and panic and adrenaline. During the honeymoon phase, disaster assistance is readily available, and the community comes together and bonds. This is when Sonoma County residents coined our unofficial motto, Sonoma Strong. The phase appeared everywhere in the fall of 2017, and it buoyed our spirits, gave us hope, and called us to persevere. It popped up on overpasses, on mailboxes, on t-shirts and bumper stickers, and it was backed up by another catchphrase, the love in the air is thicker than the smoke. Stacy felt that love. We also had, I would say, just a complete, just incredible outpouring of support from our community, from our community and even from beyond that, people who we didn't know, you know, strangers, um, especially in the, the immediate months right after the fire. It just felt like we had all, all of this support just really holding us and cradling us and taking care of us. She said some really amazing things happened. So our friends started a GoFundMe account that raised us money to help replace all the material stuff that we had lost. Uh, in Sonoma Valley, we had all of the support. The Rotary Club gave us all of these gift cards. Um, the school that I work at, my community, they raised money for us, gave us gift cards for grocery stores. We also were really lucky. Um, a woman uh, who lives in, in Sonoma Valley had actually bought a house that she was going to be renovating and it was, but it was vacant. And she heard about our family and contacted me and, but she said, we're, we're going to be renovating it, but it won't be for some time. If you would like to live there for a few months while you get on your feet, cause I know you have a new baby and you've lost everything. So we were gifted this house. So we had a place to land, which was that was one of the, the best things, I think, was to have a place to go. Atel and her family from Coffee Park felt the love, too. And so, like, I felt so blessed at that moment that so many people were willing to help us out because we, since we were renting, we also didn't have renter's insurance, so we didn't get anything from the house. And we lost two cars, and one of the cars didn't have insurance either. And so many random people that I had never met, I've never known, donated, were donating, were reaching out to me. Like, I, like, hope wherever these people are, like, they somehow get to hearing this, but, like, I'm just so grateful for everyone that ever reached out to me, like, checking up on me. Like, that, to me, was not realizing, like, dang, like, that's literally what, like, what I needed, like, just emotional support. And emotional support was just super, 
super helpful for me. Both Atel and Stacy tapped into what Meyer says are numerous opportunities for people to get help during the honeymoon phase, whether that's from private citizens, from government, from charities, from businesses. They are both optimistic that everything would return to normal and quickly. They trusted that the love in the air wasn't fleeting, but lasting, and that in time, it would deliver them from their heartbreak. Forty years ago, after working with the survivors of 1978's Boston Blizzard and the eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980, experts agreed that survivors fall into a predictable sequence of emotions after a disaster. A 1983 New York Times article titled Emotional Effects of Natural Disasters says there's initial shock, a stunning sense of astonishment and terror, followed by a euphoria at having survived, just as Stacy and Attell experienced in real life. But the article also says that this elation dissolves rapidly in the face of reality, and depression, ranging from mild to extreme, sets in. The first crack in the euphoria starts when survivors begin to take an inventory, a list of everything they have left. Their own lives top the list, of course. They look around and realize they're the lucky ones. This is exactly what Hannah Cunha did in 2017, after her mother and stepdad's house in Fountain Grove burned down. She was 15 and had gone to a concert with friends and spent that night at a friend's house. She didn't need to escape like Attell and Stacy. Some people had way worse situations. Like, I mean, I know, like, family, friends who are, like, firefighters who, like, have super bad PTSD um, from it. Like, they've seen bodies burned alive, and it's just, like, that's, like, horrible. I couldn't even imagine. So, like, I didn't even see my house burning. I was kind of lucky. Like, my brother and all of them saw that. I was not even there. But then that feeling of luckiness wears off, and the happiness dwindles. Stacy felt this acutely. That first year, I felt so supported um, and feel so grateful for everyone that, that, that helped us. But I would say the next three years has felt like a lot of that support has dissipated. Meyer's Handbook coaches mental health professionals to ask survivors at any stage simply, how are you doing? In this phase, the post-honeymoon disillusionment phase, survivors have had enough. They're irritated that anyone's even asking. They hold in their responses because no one could ever possibly understand what it's like. I had not cried to anyone. The whole like few months during the fires, I had always just kept it to myself or I'd go somewhere else, somewhere else to cry about it because I never cried in front of anyone, which was kind of bad, but I just didn't want to I felt like I didn't want to bother people because it was just like super overwhelming for me that I just felt like no one really understood what I was actually going through and I just never wanted to talk about it to anyone. The bonds from the honeymoon phase are broken and because of the increasing gap between need and assistance, survivors often feel abandoned. Supervisor Hopkins gets it. You know, I think another point to be made is that it's very strange to be in and out of the national spotlight. Um, You know, there's a moment when your community is literally on the front page of the New York Times and there are reporters absolutely everywhere. And it seems as though everyone suddenly cares about your community. But then all of that goes away. All of that support goes away and you're left to pick up the pieces. You're left to rebuild from the rubble. And that sense is really exhausting. 
I've talked to friends who have been through major hurricane events or tornado events in other parts of the country, and they share very similar experiences of, you know, wow, you guys forgot about us? You know, we're still underwater here. Our homes are still flooded, and yet the news crews have moved on. And so at the end of the day, you're just left with your community trying to pick up the pieces and hoping that it won't happen again. But even when two survivors from the same community share their grief with one another, it still doesn't make things better. Here's a tell again, talking about cross-country practice. Another girl also lost her um, house. We both came into practice. We changed some stuff. Both of us had been crying all day because I think it was the first day of school, too. And then she was like, are you okay? And Eliza was like, are you okay? And she was like, yeah. And then we stared at each other and we both just started crying. Like, we were just crying. And we cried for a while just together in the bathroom before practice. And I still remember that, too. Like, no one was okay, you know, at that moment. In 2012, the California Department of Health and Human Services published a plan that, quote, is intended to provide a statewide approach to the mental and behavioral health disaster function, unquote. The plan sets out a baseline response for government, nonprofit, and private sector groups who support mental health prior to, during, and after a disaster. The plan is called the State of California's Mental and Behavioral Health Disaster Framework, and it cites Diane Meyer's description of the six phases from her Handbook for Mental Health Professionals. In the state report, experts say rates of domestic violence and child abuse increase in this period. And they say other less violent but still damaging emotions present themselves too. Before the fires, Atel was doing well in school and breaking personal records for high school's cross-country team. Before the fires, like I was doing really good in running. After that, I just, I never had the same motivation for running ever again. Like, I completely lost my motivation for running. I completely lost my motivation for school. It was pretty bad. In her words, Atel completely flunked her junior year, and she wasn't accepted into any of her top-choice universities, schools that would have accepted her had she stayed on her same pre-trauma path. Um, after that, I was just another, another unmotivated person again unmotivated person because I was just like well if I'm not going to be able to go to four-year like that was really my only goal and I just messed it up by being sad all the time I was like just really angry at myself for like not hurrying up for not waking up my parents because I was the only one that was up and I didn't realize it like a lot of time I was just like blaming myself for it. Atel blamed herself for the fires. She told herself that it was her fault that her family lost so much. At some point in the disillusionment phase, survivors stopped being so withdrawn. They identify that they're anxious, sad, tired, irritable, frustrated, and discouraged, and they are willing to talk about their feelings. I was not okay. Like, I had been holding in my emotions for way too long that it was time for me to just, like, let it out. And it felt kind of late because it felt like people were just, like, already moving on, you know? I felt like I was just draining them with things that just didn't matter anymore. Like, oh, like you have your family, like you have things like you're wearing clothes, like what's the big deal? Like that's how I saw a lot of people, a lot of people like told. And also when I went back to school, it was really hard too because people were making so many jokes about it. And at that point I was just like so sensitive to 
any of that they're like because we were getting like gift cards and stuff and to me it was just like thank you like I appreciate it but people were like oh I wish my house burnt down so I can get all these cool gifts like things like that where people were just keep telling me things like that and I was just like how do I respond to this like I didn't even want to accept things anymore because people were just like making me feel bad because I was getting things. When they reach the point where they'll consider moving on, survivors enter the reconstruction phase, the last of the six phases of disaster. This is when survivors have an overall feeling of recovery. They've accepted what's happened and adjusted to their new normal. They begin to rebuild their lives. Meyer says this usually begins around the anniversary of the disaster. Atel describes when the reconstruction phase started for her. Emotionally, I could say it took me a little more than a year because I would just, I'd cry myself to sleep thinking about what had happened. Like, I don't know, like I would just cry myself to sleep a lot (laughs) for a long time. 2017 was just so weird to me. I don't know. But even like 2017, like all the things happened, but then 2018, I was still trying to recover. And then 2019, I was just like doing fine. And like now, I mean, you learn to accept it, you know, time, time goes by and that's what heals. Larry Robinson is in the interesting position of being both a retired psychotherapist, the former mayor of Sebastopol, and someone who has looked at his home in the rearview mirror and wondered whether he'd see it again. Robinson has studied the effects that disaster has on people and he's counseled them as a professional, a government leader, and a neighbor. He has 10 friends who lost their homes in 2017's fires. In 2019, when the Kincaid fire threatened the western part of the county, Robinson and his wife planned to bug out to San Francisco. When we first got the um, evacuation advisory, um, we decided foolishly to wait until it was mandatory. When it, and some friends who had been evacuated from Healdsburg had come down to stay with us. Um, but when we got the actual alert notice at 4.30 that morning, um, we got onto South Main Street in Sebastopol along with everybody else in Sebastopol, and it took us an hour to get to the freeway. An hour to get to the freeway for a drive that usually takes nine minutes. That was traumatic for everybody in that traffic jam because we were sitting ducks. Because of his training, Larry understands that talking about the situation that he and his wife and all the other Sebastopol residents driving east on 12 could have been caught in the blaze with no way to escape, that talking about it is key to moving on. If you don't deal with it, um, it doesn't just go away. It, um, it's like it's still in the basement of the house. Um, sending up toxic vapors that are that are making you ill. Hannah saw this in her family. My mom, I've never seen her like that. It actually makes me really sad, so let's hope I don't cry. Um, we actually had to go to therapy because my mom was like in a really, really bad place. So I just never have seen her like that. She's very, she was very, very depressed. She didn't talk for a while to us, like she wouldn't, she would just talk about work or cry. Yeah, it was it was weird. It was really weird. In the beginning of this episode, I described a conversation at a party, a conversation about the weather. The night was hot and the landscape was dry. 
and everyone at the party hoped the wind would stay down. We used to call this simply fire weather, but now we know the official name for it, a red flag warning. The National Weather Service first issued red flag warnings to alert fire departments that the weather in the next 24 hours could lead to rapid increases in fire activity. There are a few conditions that factor into the warning. The first is low relative humidity when there isn't much moisture in the air. The next factor is dry fuels when the grasses, shrubs, and trees are brittle and with very little new growth. This is caused and then exacerbated by consecutive years of drought. If it had also been windy the night of the party, and not just dry and hot, there would have been a red flag warning. And if there was a red flag warning, one of the guests might have stayed home, ready to assist an elderly neighbor who gets anxious and flustered when the alerts come in. If there had been a red flag warning, another couple would have canceled because their babysitter backed out she lives in Coffee Park, and now, whenever there's a warning, she stays home, paralyzed with fear, irritable and glued to the weather radar, while her packed car sits nosed out into the street. If there had been a red flag warning, the host would have canceled the party to begin with. No sense having people over when everyone should be packing. Supervisor Hopkins sees it all the time. One of the crazy things about living through these catastrophic incidents um, is honestly how surreal it feels. I mean, five years ago, I would never have imagined um, that now every single year we're walking into the threat of severe catastrophic wildfires, that we all have a collective sense of trauma whenever there's a red flag warning. Um, everyone is constantly, you know, sort of checking these different apps, right? You hear a siren and it sends chills down your spine, your, your spine because you're worried that that's, you know, going to be a fire engine racing off to a blaze that could burn out of control and consume entire communities. This is what PTSD does to people who experience or witness a terrifying event. You have flashbacks, nightmares, anxiety, and uncontrollable thoughts about the trauma, all of which interfere with your day-to-day -day functioning. And it's not just our local supervisors who recognize the gravity of entire communities suffering from PTSD. During his four terms serving in the House, Congressman Huffman has listened to the concerns of Californians in his district. He sees very clearly the mental health conditions under which we live. It's a very real um, trauma experience. Anyone who has lived through um, either the loss of a home or um, having to evacuate and all of the uncertainties and the fear that go along with being hunkered down, uh, maybe during a planned power shutoff where the wind is blowing and we're, we're just crossing our fingers to hoping that there won't be more fires sparked or, or suffering from the air quality impacts that, that keep you locked indoors for days at a time. I mean, that's, that's real trauma. Uh, that's a real thing. In his book, The Body Keeps a Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk says people who suffer from flashbacks often organize their lives around trying to protect against them. In other words, you rearrange your life around even the slimmest possibility that you could be re-traumatized. Seamus Reed, a now 21-year-old who lost his coffee park house when he was 17, Seamus lives this rearranging every time there's a red flag warning. 
I have this reaction to the fires of not wanting to be away from the house because it's a, it's the step before leaving because I, I need to pack everything. That's what we did last year. That's what we did the year before. And I mean, when I mean when I say everything, I mean everything. Last year, packed all my stuff into the back of my truck. The year before, um, when they evacuated us, I packed everything into the truck and we stayed. We left in the middle of the night when they sent the order for our neighborhood and was sitting in my truck for like a day in the parking lot at in Petaluma, just waiting. And it's comforting to be able to fit everything you own into the back of a truck, but then you gotta, you're, you're again paralyzed by this like planning fear that you have to have enough time to pack everything up and get out the door. The bottom line, Dr. Vanderkolk says, is that after you endure trauma, the threat perception system of the brain is changed and people's physical reactions are dictated by the imprint of the past. In October of 1870, a fire storm charged over Mount St. Helena and down the canyon into Santa Rosa thanks to high winds. The Sonoma Democrat reported, the flames were beyond control, devouring everything within their reach and swept along the mountains with such terrible speed that all efforts to check its progress were given up. The Great Fire of 1870 wasn't formally mapped, but local fire historian Jeff Elliott analyzed the reported damage. The newspaper published an inventory. The following are the names of the principal sufferers. Jacob Weingartner, ranch, house, barn, outhouses, stock, and considerable lumber destroyed. Mr. Hoffman, ranch and all he possessed, with the exception of his riding horse, consumed. The list went on. In late September 1939, maintenance crews were burning weeds on the runway at the old Santa Rosa Municipal Airport. They sparked a brush fire, and sudden winds pushed the flames through open fields in a rural area called Coffee Park. One farmer lost his house and barn. Others lost their orchards. In late September 1964, a brush fire started up on Mount St. Helena. The cause is disputed. Some credit a deer hunter who tossed a cigarette butt. Regardless, 48 hours later, in the middle of the night, 60 mile an hour winds drove the fire down the mountain, into the canyon, and through Fountain Grove, stopping just shy of Highway 101 within a mile of Coffee Park. The San Francisco Chronicle's headline read, Fire hits Santa Rosa, 100 homes destroyed. Obviously, Sonoma County isn't new to wildfire. Residents suffered devastating losses in 1870, 1939, and 1964. In fact, fire is an important part of our ecosystem, and for hundreds of years, indigenous people not only lived side by side with fire, they used it to their advantage in hunting and farming. But there are two key differences between those historical fires and today's. One is that they weren't as destructive, partially because the county wasn't as heavily populated, particularly in areas prone to fire spread, like the canyons between the mountains, and partially because the land wasn't so dry 
the temperatures weren't so hot. But the other takeaway is that Sonoma County residents who lost their homes in 1870, 1939, and 1964, they all had time to regroup afterward. They didn't stare down another catastrophe within months. In October 2017, the county suffered the Tubbs, Nuns, and Atlas fires, all at the same time. Eleven months later, residents shut themselves inside for days to avoid the noxious smoke from the campfire, the fire that destroyed the town of Paradise, 170 miles northeast of Santa Rosa. Sixteen months later, in February of 2019, we were hit with 20 inches of torrential rain in two days. The rain pushed the Russian River 14 feet above its flood stage. 2,000 homes were inundated with water, and thousands of people were ordered out of town. Seven months after that, 180,000 residents had to evacuate their homes for the Kincaid Fire. This represents about 40% of the county population, but the rest, the other 60%, well, it's wrong to consider them unscathed. Why? Because if you aren't an evacuee, you become a host. You open your home to people who might be losing theirs. And you wait and watch until their fate is decided. Ten months after the Kincaid, August 2020's Glass, Walbridge, and Myers fires, forced evacuations of almost 250,000 people, including almost all county residents who lived between Highway 101 and the Pacific, a distance of about 30 miles as a crow flies. The sheriff lifted the Walbridge evacuation warnings on September 8, 2020. On September 9th, the very next day, the skies above the San Francisco Bay Area turned an ominous, apocalyptic orange. 150 miles away, the Bear Fire was burning in Oroville. San Francisco's famous fog created a bubble over the region, and the Bear Fire smoke sat on top. The bubble had the positive effect of keeping our air quality clean, but it also diffused the sunlight in an eerie way. It felt like the end of the world. It's now summer 2021, 150 years after the Great Fire of 1870, and the Sonoma County Emergency website offers a veritable buffet of, quote, re-entry and recovery resources. You simply choose your disaster from a list. 2020 glass fire, 2019 Russian River Flood, and there's still a link for those re-entering and recovering from 2017. Recovery is a key part of the Mayo Clinic's definition of PTSD. It says, most people who go through traumatic events may have temporary difficulty adjusting and coping, but with time and good self-care, they usually get better. Time and good self-care two things we have less and less an opportunity for. Atel didn't have time to pack. Taylor had only an hour to make a risky trip up and down the mountain. Hannah didn't get the chance to see her house one last time. When disaster came in 2017, it came quickly. But it's not only about how little time we have to pack and flee. Fire season used to last three months. This year, we've been on edge since Memorial Day, and we likely won't relax until Thanksgiving, at which point we'll beg for rain but hope it doesn't come all at once. 
The clock and the calendar are unforgiving here now. The Mayo Clinic says time heals post-traumatic stress disorder, but we don't really have time anymore. Is it possible then that maybe PTSD isn't the most accurate way to talk about and treat what we're going through? It doesn't feel like we're post-trauma. We might be past one particular episode, but the disasters are unrelenting. There just isn't enough time in between. I pointed out before that the county's emergency website offers tons of useful information for recovering. But there's also a big, thick, can't-miss-a-button on the homepage. It says Get Ready, and when you click on it, the next page reads in bold headline-style lettering, Disasters Happen. Be prepared. I was a high school junior in 2017. My house is a two-minute drive from Coffee Park. My house didn't burn down, which seems miraculous when you look at the satellite photo of the Tubbs Fire burn zone. The fire took over a field only a block away from where my family lives. After we fled from the fire, with flames I could see in the hills, I couldn't go back home for two weeks. When I finally did, I saw everything covered in the ashes of other people's houses. My backyard was littered with signed documents from other people's lives, the fallout from houses exploding and the wind blowing around the debris. The fire burned half of Carl Newman High, a private school just on the other side of 101, and it could easily have reached my school had strike teams not rushed from all over the Bay Area to help our exhausted Soma County firefighters to stop it. School was canceled for weeks. We only went back three days before Halloween. My friends and I were excited about our costumes, but walking back into the building was a complete change of vibe. Three students in my trigonometry class lost their houses. They were three of the 56 students in my school who lost everything. Six teachers lost their houses too. In total, the Santa Rosa City Schools District had 800 of 16,000 students lose their homes. That's a full 5%. And out of the district's 1,600 staff, 90 lost theirs too. Think about that. 890 students and 90 staff. Nearly 1,000 people had no home to return to. The whole place was in a state of melancholy. It was like going to school with a room full of ghosts of empty spirits. The rest of high school, a year and a half, didn't feel the same. Every graduation speech since has mentioned the Tubbs fire. Classmates who once dreamt of going to four-year universities are completely lost. The only goal they can state for certain is that their families stay safe, and they feel like they need to stay home to make sure that happens. And so now I know to be prepared. I have a go back and I know to pack my car ahead of time. My friends who've lost everything tell me how important it is to save photographs and small, irreplaceable mementos. So my go bag will always include two gifts from my grandmother, a pair of earrings from Mexico, and a set of rosary beads blessed with holy water. Yeah, I'm lucky that my house survived, that my family survived, that I still have my most special things from my grandma. But I am not okay, and obviously neither is any of this, particularly in two areas, projections and mental health response. Supervisor Hopkins lays out the first part. 
there was a great um, New York Times article that had an interactive map. I think it was New York Times that um, sort of looked at wildfire threat and, and sort of water availability and various kind of things countrywide, right, in, in light of climate change. And what struck me about that map was they had a color ascribed to Sonoma County that basically meant that in the future, maybe we'll have like one really severe wildfire every five years or something. I was like, uh, hello, we're already having more than one every single year. So fix your models, right? You know, and, and yeah. so just, I mean, I feel like I don't know that the science is even keeping up with what we're experiencing, right? And it's time the mental and behavioral health disaster response models keep up too. We don't make it through trauma in a line from phase two to three to four and so on. Yeah, we feel the shock and panic of the impact and the joy of the honeymoon phase. The principles of the phases make sense, but the way they're laid out, it doesn't work anymore. Because for us, another impact can come at any time, and they do. Like for Seamus, who lost his family home, moved into a rental apartment, and then was forced to evacuate the rental because of a threatening fire. Like, it's intimidating, you know, to think about the same situation that I was in in 2017, which was not fun. And that powerless feeling that you get, and, you know, we've been evacuated, I think, twice since 2017 from our apartment, um, which was on the um, southwest side of town. Um, and, you know, that was in the middle of the city and we still had to leave again. So the idea that no matter where you live in Sonoma County, you're going to have to pack up and leave again, essentially, is, is paralyzing. Or like Hannah, who also lost her house in the Tubbs fire. But I do remember getting super bad anxiety from like seeing the sky. Like it just reminded me of it and I just got really bad anxiety but other than that, I think I'm kind of numb to the situation. <laughs> like, I don't know. I, it just makes me, like, nervous. But I think I just get more worried about, like, oh, here we go again. Like, the world's ending <laughs> kind of thing. I think I mostly just had, like, PTSD from it. Like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to die every day I walk on the street. Something's going to happen to me. <laughs> or like me, when my heart pounds, when my hands shake, and when my eyes well with tears, simply at one whiff of smoke. You might find yourself calling these situations triggers, but that doesn't seem quite right. A trigger is an event that brings up a similar feeling, an echo of what happened the first time. But it's often used to indicate that the second event isn't quite as bad as what you went through originally. But new disasters don't only echo the past, they pile on. And neither Meyer's Handbook nor California's Mental Health Disaster Response Framework talk about how to help people suffering from a new catastrophe while still recovering from the last one. On the very first page of Diane Meyer's Handbook, the one that instructs volunteers and therapists on how to respond to catastrophes, she says, No one who sees a disaster is untouched by it. Everyone who sees a disaster is, in some sense, a victim. But it's not just the locals who need to think about the toll a disaster can take on mental health. Meyer says even people who experience disaster secondhand through exposure to extensive media coverage can be affected. 
So the more often Americans see images of burned out houses or of people sifting through the soggy moldy scraps of their flooded homes, the more we'll all need disaster related mental health support. And what will and should that look like? PTSD counseling? The six phases of disaster? Maybe the place you live has a more nuanced plan or something newer. Maybe it doesn't have a plan at all. We started this episode with a tell on the night she fled Coffee Park. That night feels like the beginning of her story, but that's actually what researchers call phase two. It's not what they consider the beginning. The beginning, they say, is the pre-disaster phase. It's a time before disaster strikes, and it's characterized by fear and uncertainty. They say that, in this phase, disasters without warning can cause feelings of vulnerability and lack of security. They can cause fear of future, unpredicted tragedies, and the feeling that you can't protect yourself and your family. Disasters with warnings can cause guilt or self-blame for failure to follow instructions. Sound familiar? Myers says the pre-disaster phase may be as short as hours, or even minutes, or it may be as long as several months. But here in Sonoma County, we know that description needs to change. October isn't what it used to be. Graduation speeches still talk about what we lost four years ago. 20-somethings only buy new stuff if it passes a sad but real litmus test. If I need to flee, will this fit in my car? Sonoma County is now forever in the pre-disaster phase. Except we don't call it that. We call it yesterday. We call it today. And we call it tomorrow. And as Atel's mother sensed when she woke up from a dead sleep to find her neighborhood in the midst of catastrophe, we know that something is not right. Next time on Chronic Catastrophe. Environmental disasters have physical ramifications too, on our lungs, our brains, and the rest of our bodies. What exactly is happening to us when we're exposed to wildfire smoke or floodwaters? And how bad can it really be? Every single time there's a wildfire, you have hordes of parents, concerned community members coming out and asking, is it safe to go outside? Is it safe to breathe the air? Is it safe for my child to be in school? So is it? How do you know? And if you can figure out that it's not safe, then where is? He said, I'll tell you what. He said last year the smoke was worse in Montana than it was here because it blows up that way. You know, <laughs> it was, it was all the smoke from California was blowing into Montana and probably Idaho and all that area. So that lets that out. <laughs> According to this logic, even living thousands of miles away from fire doesn't protect you. And climate scientists assure us none of this is going to let up anytime soon. So what can we do to stay healthy? Unfortunately, you know, it sometimes can feel like, you know, it's the proverbial rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. In the next episode, we'll explain what it means for us physically to live through one disaster after another. I'm Ritza Camacho, and this is Chronic Catastrophe, a podcast brought to you by a grant from California Humanities through the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Emerging Journalist Fellowship Program. 
This episode was produced by me, Rebecca Bell, Lawrence Bates, and Nick Bedis. The score was written by Fabian Middleman. Special thanks to James Mizio and to Ann Belden, our advisor at Santa Rosa Junior College, for her unwavering support and invaluable guidance. Episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>